You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ahmed Munawar, founder and chief marketing officer at Boutique Growth, where we help professional services firms build actionable marketing plans so they can generate more leads and win more business. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mike Moriarty of Winning New Business. Mike is a veteran business development trainer who specializes in working with professional services firms. He brings a ton of experience to the table, and I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. A few things to pay attention to in our chat. The first is the difference between buying and selling. Believe it or not, the buying process is not simply the inverse of the selling process. Buyers have their own process. You have yours. It's critical that you understand what their process looks like so you can better craft your approach. The second is the three stages of the buying process. Within the buying process, there are three distinct stages. You need to know what's happening at each stage. And finally, we're gonna talk about the surprising elements of what makes you a trusted advisor. What makes you someone who's trusted to your buyer and to your prospect? It's probably not what you think. You can grab the show notes for this episode at forecast.fm slash WNB. That's forecast.fm slash WNB. Before I let you go, if you haven't yet joined us inside our free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms, you can get immediate access to the free five-day crash course at 5leadgen.com. And you can spell out five or use the number. Either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. With that, here's Mike. Hey there, Mike. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show today. My pleasure, Ahmed. Thanks for having me. So listen, let's jump right in, Mike. One of the challenges that I find when it comes to selling professional services is that as a seller, you know, we tend to think of the process, the sales process, the selling process from our perspective, right? What do we need to do as sellers to be able to open up new conversations? What do we need to do to nurture relationships? What do we need to do to close sales? And sometimes we think of it from that perspective at the expense of thinking of it from a buyer's perspective you know, the sales process versus the buying process. And I'd like you to kind of explain to us to kick this off. What's the difference between the sales process or the selling process and the buying process? Oh, sure. Uh, The buying process is is something that's been studied and researched and and beaten to death by uh, everyone from Harvard Business Review to uh, Zig Ziglar. And the selling process really has to do, it's a a top-down process where you start with an opening and you probe for client issues and when you hear them you support them and you confirm them and if you get objections along the way you go back up to probing and you probe into the objection and you support it with more information and you confirm it and make sure there's a mutual understanding before you move to closing and that's pretty much in a nutshell every sales process that is promoted in a multitude of books out there across the globe in every different language. The selling process is that basic selling process. However, our clients don't go through a selling process. They go through a buying process. And that buying process is really a bottom-up process as opposed to a top-down. So right there, we have a little bit of a problem. The client's going in a different direction than we are as people trying to sell or, or do business development with. So. In the buying process, and if we look at this from a little bit of a theoretical perspective, and then you can apply your 
particular situation to it later, is that clients start off being unaware that they have a need. Um, they're going along and everything seems fine until all of a sudden something isn't fine and they become aware that there's an issue, there's a problem, uh, there's a challenge that they're facing. So they start doing research around it, trying to find out what's going on. So they develop knowledge. And they develop knowledge easy to do today with the internet and with all sorts of information that's available out there. And as you develop this knowledge of the situation that you're facing and potentially the problems that you're trying to, to fix, you start identifying potential solutions to it. And as you identify those, you start liking perhaps one solution over another. And uh, from there, you move on to where you actually have a preference for one. You've identified one particular solution that's going to address your needs exactly the way you think that um, it'll work. And from there, you get conviction. So you now know this is it. But in today's world, most people don't make singular decisions. They get other people involved. So from there, they start moving out, talking to other people and getting other people to buy into that decision to use a particular solution to fix their problem or to address a, an issue that they have. So that's completely the opposite of what we try and do with selling. So that's why so many times that there's a disconnect between buying and selling. And you don't seem to, to as a seller, you don't seem to connect with the, the client as much as you'd like to. So, so did, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so what I'm wondering is, how do we reconcile the two, right? The selling process is something you know, it has been well-researched, it's been written about, it's, it's how products and services have been sold for a long time. But, you know, the buying process is also something that's well-substantiated. How do we reconcile the two as sellers so that we can eliminate that disconnect? Well, many times I tell professional service people that I work with that if you forget about selling, you understand what it is, you've been doing it for a while, but put it aside for now. It's in the back of your mind, put it aside. And your job is no longer to sell your services to a client, but is to help them buy services. So if we can deconstruct that buying process down a little bit, that beginning awareness and knowledge area is really a cognitive stage. The client's at a cognitive stage. How can we help them move through that, that stage of understanding? So that's where marketing material comes in. That's where white papers come in. That's where sales and marketing can work together to address issues and get in front of clients as they're going through their buying process. Once the client gets into a liking and preference stage, that becomes more emotional. And as they become more emotional, liking is an emotion after all. As they become more emotional, you deal with them in a different way. This is where trust comes in. And lastly, when they get to the conviction and having to get buy-in around their decision with other people in, in their organization, that's a behavioral stage. They now have to take action and do specific things. So if we go back it again, the cognitive stage, they're really thinking about what are the solutions, what are their problems, trying to frame it. Then they get into the emotional stage where they're really feeling a preference for one vendor or one solution over another. And then they get to the behavioral stage where they have to actually take action to do something about it. So think of it as thinking, feeling, and action, and how you as a salesperson, instead of using the sales process, use the buying process to help them uh, think feel and act so that they get to an actual buying decision. You know, as I'm sure you're aware and you've seen many studies and uh, research done on it, uh, the biggest thing that we lose to in professional services sales is the status quo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that final behavior stage is extremely important. But yeah. if we break those down, 
So let's look at the cognitive stage. So what you're trying to do as a salesperson is you're trying to influence the thinking of the prospects who's going through the issues. So what's the best way to influence that thinking? There's actually three things that you can do as a salesperson. And remember, in the back of your mind, you're, that you're still going through a sales process, but you're really helping the client or the prospect buy. There are three things that you have to do to influence thinking. First thing you have to do is challenge the prospect's pre-existing beliefs. You have to disrupt their thinking. And the reason why is if they have a, a preconceived notion about what a solution looks like, and you arrive with your solution that's different than what they're already thinking, immediately their defenses go up. So unless you're able to challenge and disrupt their existing thinking, they won't be as open to your solution to the way you want them to believe or think around a specific issue. So that's number one, challenge their pre-existing beliefs. Number two, you need to be immediately and personally relevant which means you have to resonate immediately to their values or to the outcome that they're after. And it's the old spaghetti against the wall analogy. If you throw a whole bunch of spaghetti at the wall and hope for some of it to stick, that's not a very good strategy. So what you really need to do is to find out what those issues are that they're after and what they're dealing with and make sure that whatever content you provide them from your marketing is relevant to that, what's going on with them right there. And then third, third thing, reduce their mental effort. You can't make it difficult for them to get through your material, your marketing material. It has to be simple, it has to be clear, and it has to be concise. So again, challenge their pre-existing beliefs and assumptions, disrupt how they're thinking, be immediate and personally relevant to them. You have to resonate, appeal to their values and to, their, and to that outcome that they're, or the issue that they're trying to deal with and reduce their mental effort to a minimum. Make sure your content and whatever information you're providing them is simple, clear, and concise. And that's how you're able to influence them in that early cognitive stage. So let's talk a little bit more about the cognitive stage. This is the first of three stages that you've outlined here, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral. In the cognitive stage, I'm just trying to think about the CEB and Google study on B2B marketing and sales that said that almost the, the average buyer is almost 60% through their buying process before they actually contact a vendor. So at this stage in the process where they're you know either unaware or they have kind of low-level, early-stage awareness of the problem, would a buyer have typically contacted a vendor or a professional, or is this now all just kind of in the research stage in this cognitive area? Yeah, you got it. They are in the research stage. Now, the 60% number that you quoted is absolutely true. And this is where you don't have the opportunity to deal with them because they're doing this in the background. You may not even know that they're looking for a solution that you can help them with. So that's why all of your marketing material has to go to that research phase so that you influence their thinking. And so you may not even know, but they've picked up your white paper off your website. They've looked at some of your blog postings or some of your posts on LinkedIn. And it's in those kinds of material that you have to challenge them. You have to be immediately relevant to them. And personally as well, many times we think professional services is all about business, but there's also personal issues. If this issue doesn't get resolved, does that mean that this person's going to have to work an extra two hours a day? Does it mean that he's going to get into trouble with the president of his company because he's not addressing this issue properly. So those are the personal issues that you need to address. And then, of course, reduce the mental effort. The easier it is for them to go, I get this, 
the more they're going to move into that next phase of liking favoring you. Yeah. No, I love it. I mean, so as you're listening to this, I want you to think to yourself, you know, if I'm not doing these three things, if I'm not in my marketing material, you know, forget the sales conversation for a minute, right? But before anybody actually contacts you, if you're not challenging their pre-existing beliefs and assumptions, you're not being immediately and personally relevant to the buyer specifically, and if you're not, you know, making things really, really simple and easy for them to understand, then chances are you're not getting as many calls as you could be. That's right. Exactly. Excellent. Let's move on to to stage two of the buying process, the emotional stage. So the emotional stage is they've now done their work. They've identified some potential solutions. And now they're starting to like one over another. They've seen a, a, a provider who's provided them with uh, change their thinking a little bit about what they thought their issue was, is resonating to them on a personal basis, and has been easy to follow because their content's simple, clear, and, and concise. And so they're now moving into this emotional phase where uh, they're starting to like you over other providers and other solutions that may be out there. So what's going on there is now they have to, to like you, and they're probably past now the 60% number that you mentioned earlier, and they've now reached out to you, and they're trying to identify whether uh, they may have some questions for you and identify whether they're really going down the right path in terms of uh, liking and preferring your solution. So now we're getting into uh, something called the emotional stage, which is really all about likability and trust. So likability and trust are based on four specific elements. And this comes from a study that was done in the United States between uh, 2008 and 2015, not a small study, quite a big one, where they went to professional service providers and provided them with a questionnaire, as well as to participate in the study, they asked the questions, they provided this questionnaire to the professionals, to a colleague of these professionals, and then to a client of the professionals. So they had the professional themselves, peers and clients, respond to a questionnaire to identify the elements of what makes someone trust, trustable and likable. So they came up with four different things that came out of that study. The first one was, first element of trust and likability was credibility. So your skills, your knowledge, your expertise. As a professional, as a credited professional who's part of a professional association of any kind, Credibility is a given, so no problem there. Number two, reliability. So that's the actions we take and the promises we keep. That d- defines reliability. And many times people make the mistake of uh, confusing reliability and trust. Reliability is not trust. It's an element of trust. So again, reliability, actions we take, keeping our promises. The next element was something that they called low self-orientation. And what this means is a focus on the client. So a good example of this is when many people listen, they listen to respond to what's being said by a prospect when really what you need to be doing is listening to understand. Mm. And that's the difference between a low and a high self-orientation. So again, four elements, credibility, reliability, low self-orientation, and lastly, intimacy. And not the kind of intimacy you're thinking of, but intimacy (laughs) by being, being empathetic, being safe to talk to, knowing that if you ask a, a silly question or a question that may not make you sound very smart, it'll stay within that conversation. So discreteness as well, empathy, safety, discreteness. So these four elements together create trust, 
and create likability. And strangely enough, most of the professionals in this study cited credibility and reliability as the two elements that were the most important. But when they asked peers and clients, they found that the two elements that were the most important were actually low self-orientation, which means as a client, you were focused on me instead of focused on the services you provided. Mm. And intimacy made me feel that I was understood, allowed me to ask questions that were crazy, and maybe even have um, supported me when being challenged by others within my organization. (laughs) So the real most important things are the self-orient, low self-orientation and intimacy. And most of us never even think of that. It's really not surprising at all, though, when you think about it, right? Because as professionals, we obviously like to think it's because we're so damn smart is why people hire us, right? Because we're so incredibly talented and good at what we do that that should be good enough. That's why people come to us. But when we look back at, you know, what we talked about earlier, the 60% of the buying process being complete before a buyer contacts you, then it all makes sense. They've already determined that you're credible and reliable largely through their own research, Right? You, you wouldn't be having the conversation if you didn't have some credibility and reliability to your name and your firm's name. Now that they're talking to you at this stage in the buying process, they're trying to feel you out as a person, as an individual, as a human. That Can they get along with you? Do you care about their needs? Do you pay attention to them? Do you listen? So on and so forth. Well, it goes back to the old adage that everybody likes to do business with people they like to do business with. Yeah, And absolutely. it's so important. The credibility and reliability doesn't make that. It's the low self-orientation and the intimacy that do. Now, don't get me wrong. You still need the credibility. You still need the reliability as a base to build that low self-orientation and intimacy on. But the vast majority of professionals never think of it that way. And yeah. So when you move, when you go from that selling mentality into this, this um, helping clients buy and you get into this emotional stage and understand that, you're way ahead of any of your competitions right there. So, you know, it also brings me back to an example that I use as well is that if you go to a a cocktail reception or cocktail party and you run into somebody and for the half an hour that you're there, they don't stop talking about themselves. You walk out of there and you think, my, what an ass that person is. (laughs) Yet, let's go back into that, that same a scenario where that person is asking questions about you, is focused on you instead of on themselves, is really interested in what you're saying. You do all most of the talking. They just ask a few questions and you talk your head off. You walk out of there and you think, wow, what a nice person. Mm. So it's a real example of how that low self-orientation and intimacy makes all the difference. It's funny. I was recently on the B2B growth show with James Carberry, and I had a had a prospect reach out to me after that interview and schedule a free coaching call. And she was, you know, not really my ideal client. You know, she's a B2B company. She owned a B2B company, but more on the product side, not on the service side. And I work with service firms. And so this really rings true for me after that experience, because going into that conversation, I was already credible in her mind because she, you know, she heard my interview. She heard me speak. She went to my website. She checked out the content. I, I was credible. Right. And as soon as we got on the phone and, and I found out what she does, I said right away, I said, look, you're not the best fit for what I do at Boutique Growth because you're a product based business. And I do B2B, but I do B2B on the services side. We got that out of the way. And then I said, hey, look, we're on the phone. Like, How can I help you? Right. I, I can still give you some advice. So tell me you know, what your challenges are, what you're dealing with, what your goals are and so on. And we ended up talking. And, and by the end of it, she goes, 
how can I hire you? <laughs> like, how can we work together? And, and I said to her, I said, look, you're not, this is not my wheelhouse. You know, I don't do products, right? But I guess the low self-orientation and the intimacy that was established in that conversation kind of trumped everything else. And despite the fact that I didn't have much domain expertise or knowledge of her industry, she still wanted to work with me. Yeah, and she would never have called you in the first place if you didn't have the credibility and, and the reliability. And so it was really, she was buying on the low self-orientation and intimacy. Definitely, yeah. Excellent. So let's jump now to the third and final stage of the buying process, the action or the behavioral stage. Okay, so we, we got them thinking, we disrupt their thinking a little bit, we've made it personal to them, we've now reached out to them, had a conversation or two, and you've dealt with them. Uh, they like you because you're focused on them. Uh, you're asking questions that are intimate, that allows them to make, that makes them feel safe. And now they're, they've made the decision. So they've decided, you know what, I want to go with Amar. But in many organizations, that we, as we know, there has to be more than one person involved in decision making, especially when it comes to spending money. So he goes back in, so there are, our mythical uh, buyer goes in and sits down in, in, with his, um, uh, his colleagues. He says, this is the solution we should go with. So his colleagues ask him, well, you know, is this the information that we've got? Do they understand what our issues are? Uh, do they resonate with what we're trying to do? And the problem is, is that if you don't resonate with them, although your offering is unique and you're able to substantiate, you've done this with other clients, you're able to do it. If your resonance isn't weak, if you haven't connected with them and their particular situation, the client's going to think, I'm not sure if this is the right firm for me. And you're probably going to lose the business. You may lose it to status quo or you may lose it to somebody else. So there's a second element to making it safe and easy for them to buy from you. And that's differentiation. Have you differentiated yourself as the best alternative? Now, if you haven't, what's going to happen is you, you may have strong resonance with them. You're resonating with them. You're able to substantiate that you've done this before and with other clients, but you haven't done a good job at differentiating yourself. What's going to happen is the client's going to think, well, if they're all the same or, or they're the same as the other provider, who's the cheapest? Mm. So you've now got yourself into a commodity uh, situation by not differentiating yourself well enough. So say you're re you've resonated with the client with their specific needs, you've differentiated yourself as the best alternative, and now you have to substantiate it. If you haven't substantiated, you don't create confidence that you're going to be able to do the work. So again, strong resonance, unique offering, but you haven't substantiated the client's going to think it's not worth the risk to my organization or personally to me, to my reputation, if this doesn't work out because we haven't seen that they've substantiated that they can actually do what they're saying they're going to do. So those three elements have to be weaved into your final proposal and what you're trying to do to make them move forward, to make the decision, get buy-in from others in the organization, and sign off on your proposal. So again, resonance, differentiation, substantiation. And that doesn't mean put a, an appendix in a proposal that's got five case studies. But as you talk to them, as you deal with them, even within your proposal itself, talk about how you've done this with other organizations. And even if it's a small bit, it doesn't have to be a full case study, but just to say we've done these kinds of things in the past and these kinds of solutions are, are how we make it work. Uh, that's very much how uh, this action stays and how you'll get over it and have them favor you in the buying process. 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this sounds like it's uh, sequential in a sense that first you have to resonate in that you have to make sure that what you're offering actually meets the client's needs. Once you've done that, then you need to differentiate. And, you know, there's no sense in being different or being unique if you haven't resonated, right? Because you can, you can have a unique offering, but if the client doesn't see it as being relevant to their problem, then it's nice that you're unique, but that doesn't represent any benefit to the client. And finally, you know, substantiating is good, but if you haven't resonated and if you haven't differentiated, then it's not going to get you very far. Is that right? Exactly. Absolutely. And it is it, it is sequential through your conversations. You want to deal with that. Say you get an objection as you're talking to them on the phone while they're in the, the thinking stage. Uh, you have to resonate with them. Say, you know what, we've dealt, uh, resonate with them. You have to say, yes, this is something that we've seen before. We understand based on this, this, and this, that if you try this other alternative, it's not going to work. So you demonstrate to them that you understand their business. And that's what they want to feel understood. That's what resonance really means in this situation. And then differentiate from how they're doing it now, which would be the status quo. And if you know your competition, how you would do it differently than how what your competitions would propose your competition would propose, that's your differentiation. And then of course substantiate by saying, We've done this before and these are the, the results that we've seen from doing this with other like clients. I'm guessing you could probably get a good sense of which of the, these kind of three stages within the action stage of the buying process that the buyer's in based on their questions, right? If they're asking questions like, well, you know, have you done this before? You know, have you worked with other, other clients like us? Then they're probably in the substantiation stage. Whereas if they're asking some basic questions about the solution, then it's resonance. Is that right? That's absolutely right, but it also depends on perhaps the questions you're asking. If you're dealing with um, an individual who's part of a, a team that's going to sit down with three or four people and make a decision, you want to find out from them by asking them questions, what's your CEO's hot buttons on this? Um, what's your CFO's hot buttons on this? So that when you talk to them and you provide them that substantiation, you give them the proposal, you're resonating and differentiating and substantiating for everyone sitting around the table. Which in these days is a lot of people, right? It's sometimes four or five, six people makes it pretty messy, doesn't it? Well, when you say these days, one of the most interesting studies that I've seen came out of IBM a couple of years ago where they looked at how millennials like making decisions. And millennials feel that and feel strongly that decisions made by a group of people are better decisions than decisions made by an individual. Mm. Now, as a baby boomer, I know, and I've seen many times, I'm the chief marketing officer, I'm the chief procurement officer, I'm making those decisions. But today, that doesn't work anymore. There's always more and more people. And we're seeing in, in a number of professional service areas, we're seeing where it's up to six and seven people that are sitting around the table that are deciding together which provider gets the business. Well, to quote the CEB again, right, the CEB's d data coming out of the Challenger customer, I think it was 5.8 is the average number of people that are involved in a B2B buying decision. So six people, yeah. right? So six people that have to see the resonance, see the differentiation, and see the substantiation. And it's all going to have to be in their terms, right, from the way that they see the problem. And that's why your questioning skills have to be so honed in such good shape 
that um, you're able to ask those questions of the contact that you're dealing with to find out what the issues are for the other decision influencers or decision makers around the table so that in your proposal you can address those as well. And this is why you'll read on Mike Moriarty's value proposition on his website or on LinkedIn that he helps (laughs) professional (laughs) services leaders navigate today's procurement economy because there's a lot of navigation to be done. It's not as simple as it used to be, is it? No, not at all. In fact, I've got this one great graph where it shows what it used to be like to sell to professional services to organizations and what it's like today. And one of the big differences before it was one issue, one decision maker, one decision. Now it's multitude of issues, multitude of decision makers, and it could go in many different ways. Your proposal could end up being tweaked and changed to address a larger or even smaller size needs of your clients. Yeah, and we've all seen that before. Listen, Mike, this has been really, really good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people find you or look you up or engage you if they want to? My website is winningnewbusiness.ca. I actually talk about some of these things on the website, and I've got some great resources on my blog, which is also on the, at that same web address, winningnewbusiness.ca. So um, I encourage anyone who, that we've resonated with this with to go take a look and, and uh, delve in more about how this buying process can help you, understanding this buying this process can help you to sell to your prospects. Excellent. That's winningnewbusiness.ca. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Fantastic. Thank you, Ahmad. And uh, hopefully uh, we can do this again. I'd love to. Cheers. Have a good day. Thank you.